I want to, uh, I want to direct you in, in your uh, Bible to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, the third chapter. And I didn't even send these scriptures on, did I? I was a bad, bad person. Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. Last week, I began a series, a mini-series. We're only going to touch on it for a few weeks. It's not going to be as long as what, what we did in the Lord's Prayer in the fall. But it's a series on what the Apostle Paul calls giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. He also talks about the grace of giving, which we're going to talk about today. But we want to talk about the truth of God in the scriptures about giving to God, what it means to give to God. Now, as I mentioned last week, and a number of people were out because of the snow, no question about it, I want to briefly uh, reiterate. When, when we go to talk about giving, there's, there's actually jokes uh, on the internet about, oh, you can, um, uh, if you find out it's a, a series on stewardship or you're going to be talking about giving, uh, you can skip those services or something like that because it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, there's kind of jokes about it. Um, there's no question that in some circles, from some angles, uh, teaching about giving in the scriptures, from the scriptures, has been abused. There's, there's no question. Some people have abused it. Um, and there's no question that our culture has become a little bit cynical about the question of giving. Um, the whole idea, oh, we're going to talk about money. Um, you know, preachers, all, you know, all preachers want is your money. Um, I want to tell you, um, just being candid, if I wanted money, I would have gone into a different, prof <laughs> a different profession. But that's kind of a point apart. Um, but th there's a cynicism. Even, the, even people can have contradictory ideas in their head where they're kind of like, well, it's obvious the preacher's not out for money. Look the way he lives. But somehow, underneath, He's got to have a Swiss bank account or the church is something, you know, something's going on. So there's a cynicism that's got into our culture. And so for this reason, there are a lot of pastors that, that just don't want to touch this stuff. They don't want to talk about it at all. Um, but that, that leads to a poverty of spirit that God doesn't want us to have. That leads to a lack of understanding of God's truth. And I want to tell you, once I started looking into it, God talks a lot about this. He talks a lot about it. And why does God talk about it? Because God needs money. He says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. So God doesn't need money, but he wants us to be blessed. And, and I'm not just talking. He does want us to be financially blessed. He does. But he wants us to be free. And he wants to walk in the fullness of his blessing. So for this reason, I think it's all the more that we want to talk about these truths. And I want to tell you, in, uh, in a mini-series, there's no way that I'm going to be able to talk about all that the Scripture talks about because it is, it is extensive. But I want to kind of touch on some of the high points. And Malachi chapter 3 is one of these sort of textbook passages. So let me read Malachi chapter 3, uh, these, uh, these seven verses from verse 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
From the days of your fathers, you have, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? So this is how God is answering the question. He answers the question with a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there be, may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you open it to us, God. Enlighten our hearts Free us, Lord God, from ignorance or any sort of impediment that would keep us from receiving the blessing that you have for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, Malachi chapter 3 is kind of a textbook passage on tithing. So um, when people think about tithing and they think about uh, the, the importance of tithing and our uh, sort of our obligation to tithe, very often they'll go to this. And so... Um, Pastors, uh, I would say the majority of pastors kind of treat this as a hot potato. It's sort of like, oh man, I got to talk about tithing, and that means I got to talk about Malachi three, and it's about cursing, and it's about robbing, and it's 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 kind of a, a stick that that you hit people with, and so they either sort of treat it like a hot potato, like it's in the Word, and I'm supposed to preach the full counsel. I'm just being transparent with you right now as a pastor, right? what pastors think as they're dealing with a passage like this. Oh, yeah, do I really want to get up and tell my people, oh, good morning, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Has that, everybody glad to see me? Hey, praise God. Okay, you're all cursed, you know, with a, with a curse. And you're cursed because you're robbing God, right? So, you know, pastors don't really like saying that sort of stuff, and so it's kind of a hot potato. You touch on it, and you move on, and you talk about something else. There are maybe some pastors who are like, man, I'm going to give it to them this morning. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to read them. I'm going to hit I'm going to read them the riot act out of Malachi chapter 3 and you know it's not I didn't write it it's the bible so I you know so so you're you're clean. Um, I think both of those approaches would be a mistake with this passage. I think treating it as a hot potato that you just touch on it and you move on without really going into its powerful truths is a mistake. And obviously, uh, I believe it would be a significant mistake to use it as a stick to hit anybody with. I don't think that's even its original intent. And of course, um, we've, we've, we've moved into the new covenant. Uh, and so there's, there's even other things that we ought to bring to our understanding of the text. But let me, let me, let me just touch on the text as it is for a second, and then we can begin to unfold its truths. First of all, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, the ordering of the books isn't always an indicator of where things stand, but in this case, it pretty much is. Um, Malachi was one of the last prophets to speak before the so-called 
400 years of silence before John the Baptist rose up and prophesied the coming of the Messiah. So you've got, you've got this sort of, he's sort of the last of the Mohicans. He's, he's speaking these words. This is the time when the, the Jewish people, they've already been in exile in Babylon, and now they've been allowed to return. And they're back in the land, and they're trying to reestablish their faith. They've rebuilt the temple. You can read about that in uh, uh, the books of Haggai and Zechariah. They've reestablished the law. That's uh, Ezra, and they've rebuilt the wall around the city. That's Nehemiah, right? So they've, they've got the city Jerusalem going again. But uh, lo and behold, it turns out they've got some of the same issues that they had before they went into exile. Not so much that they're in all this idolatry like they were then, but they're kind of slack. They're slack in their zeal, and they're slack in their faith. And God says, you're robbing me. And this mystifies them because they don't understand how they could be, be doing it. But God de defines their sin as a sin of omission. Does everybody understand the difference between a sin of commission and a sin of omission? Sin of commission is something that you do that you shouldn't do. And a sin of omission is something you should be doing, but you fail to do. And so this is a sin of omission. And he's acting, he's speaking like it's a sin of commission. He says, you're robbing me. And they're like, what? <laughs> what did we do? How, how, did we, how did we come? Did we go into the temple and take something out of the temple? Did we steal something? How are we robbing? And not, not only that, he says, you're all robbing me. How are we all robbing? And then he, he says, you're robbing me not by what you've done but by what you failed to do. And he talks about this in terms of the tithes and the contributions. So the tithe is 10%, and then contribution and offering is above and beyond that. And he says, to fail to bring those is, 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 a, is a robbery to me. And then he, he goes even further, and he says something that cuts crosswise with uh, something else that is previous said in the word. What does it say in the word about putting the Lord your God to the test? What does it say? It says don't do it. That's what it says. It says don't, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But here he goes, in this I'm going to let you test me. Go ahead and test me. Uh, bring the full tithe in and see if I don't, if I don't pour out this tremendous blessing. And then, and then there's this uh, promise of blessing. So on the one end of the, the verse and the passage... There's talk about cursing, and on the other hand, it talks about this promise of blessing. So this is, uh, this is what we might call sort of a, a textbook or quintessential passage about the tithe, right? Not the only one, but, but, but kind of a go-to passage. Now, what, what is it with the tithe? The tithe, as Malachi is presenting it, is what we would call law-based, law-based. And we understand that um, because these people would have operated according to what's in the book of Deuteronomy. That was the law that they would have been following. Um, that's the law that Ezra would have read when re he reestablished uh, the people in Jerusalem and the temple worship. So they would have operated that way. And the, the other indicator is that he's talking about their crops, right? He's talking about their stuff. And if you read in uh, Deuteronomy 16, it talks about tithing. It gives the structure of how you're to tithe. You're to appear before the Lord at regular intervals. You're to bring a portion of uh, the, the fruit of the land. It was, it was an agricultural society, so people brought uh, their tithe in kind for most part. In other words, they, brought, they actually bought the grain. They didn't 
Uh, in some cases, they could sell it. There's a provision for that in the law that you can sell your grain and bring money. Um, but, but most of the people would actually, you know, if they raised flocks and herds, they'd, they'd bring a portion of that, right? They would bring their grain. They would bring grapes. They would bring whatever fruit that they were raising. And they would present. And, and the word of God says, no one is to, pre- is to present themselves before me empty-handed, right? Everybody is to bring that tithe. So what is the tithe? What is the tithe? I mean, obviously people say, oh, well, it's 10%. Well, that's, that's just the form that, that the tithe takes. What the tithe actually is goes a whole lot deeper. And early examples of the tithe in action in the scriptures tell us a great deal about what this is. And I want to tell you, listen to me now, because there's freedom in this for you. There's tremendous blessing if you'll, if you'll hear what the word of the Lord says. So there, I'm, I'm going to look at some early examples of the tithing going backwards, right? Not going front to back, but going backwards. Abraham, Genesis chapter 14. He had just defeated the kings. He had just rescued Lot. He had his private army of 318 men. They went, they did a, they did a commando raid, and they freed Lot and his family. And he got a lot of plunder. He got money. What does he do when he gets to Jerusalem and Melchizedek comes out and greets him? Melchizedek was priest of, in Jerusalem. What does he do? He gives him 10%. He gives him 10%. He gives him a tithe. That's Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, I mean, you read that and you're like, who's Melchizedek? You never even heard of the guy. And all of a sudden, Abraham is giving this guy 10%. And if you read that whole passage, Abraham is nobody's fool. Abraham doesn't want to owe anybody anything. He doesn't even want to owe them a debt of gratitude. So these kings are like, well, look, take this. He's like, no, thank you. I don't want you saying that you made me rich. So Abraham is, is, uh, is a true patriarch, but, but all of a sudden, he's given Melchizedek 10%. Very powerful passage. Noah, Genesis chapter 8, counting backwards. Noah comes off the ark. He's there. Um, does the world have a whole lot of animals in it at that point? Not a whole lot, just what was on the ark. And what, is, what does he do? He makes a sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice. I mean, there's something that's a sacrifice in form, and then there's a sacrifice that's really a sacrifice. That's really a sacrifice. And, and, and he makes that sacrifice, and it goes up to the Lord, and it pleases the Lord. Abel. Genesis chapter 4. This is the first, these are the first begotten human beings on the planet, right? Adam and Eve are created beings, but Eve gives birth to Cain and Abel, and here's Abel. He's, the, he's, he's, he's born. He's, he's the first generation of human beings that are born, and he, it says he, he brought the first fruits of his flock. He brings the sacrifice. Right, does anybody notice anything about these three examples, Abraham, Noah, and Abel? They're first fruits, that's right, they're first fruits, there's something else. They're all before the law. Every single one of them take place before Moses established the law. They're all pre-law, that's a very important point. Because a lot of people will say, well, tithe, I mean, what's this with the tithe? I mean, we're in the New Testament, we're under the New Covenant. And that doesn't have anything to do with me, um, uh, the tithe, because the tithe has to do with the law. The form of the tithe, as Malachi talked, yes, 
That is defined and given structure by the law. But the essence of what the tithe is, the first fruits principle predates the law. Meaning, it's above the law. It transcends the law. It's something that is grounded in the nature of God itself. Now, I'm going to read from what I consider to be the primal tithing passage, and it might catch you by surprise. This is Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a lot of different theories about what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like. Some people think it was especially, especially tempting, especially beautiful tree, that it was, you know, guarded and, you know, somehow there was... But I don't, I don't see any of that in the, in the scriptures. It's in the middle of the garden. But I'll tell you what my theory is. It was a tree that was no more or no less attractive than any of the other trees that God said that Adam and Eve could eat from. It's, a, it's just a tree. And God said about this tree... All those other trees you can eat from. Matter of fact, you can read in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, hey, you can eat everything anywhere. It's all yours. You can have it all. And only in Genesis 2 does God say, accepting this one. This one right here you can't eat from. Why did he do that? Why does he do that? Has anybody ever heard that, that old statement, possession is nine-tenths of the law? I heard a story about a... Um, about an aristocrat, a nobleman in England. And he owned land, a lot of land around a particular village. He's the type of guy that nobody ever sees, but his name is on everybody's lips because he owns everything. So people, if you're new to the village, you come in and you're looking and you're like, well, why can't we build over there? Oh, that's... That's, you know, Lord Buckingham. He, he owns that. Well, what about over here? He owns that too. Well, what doesn't the guy own, right? I mean, he's just, he was just a landowner, and it was a village, and it was a peaceful village and so forth. And he owns so much land that if he didn't let people cross his land at certain points, it would be very difficult for people to get around, right? They'd, just, they'd have to be doing these big circles all around. And so... On one particular plot of land, he, uh, he made a road. He made a road, and it was a fairly well-kept country gravel road, and it was frequented. People used that road every single, every single day, and there were gates at either end of the road. And those gates were always open, and people could regularly use, there was no toll, there was no guard. There wasn't anybody telling anybody, hey, wait a minute, you know, you got to upkeep the road. He kept up the road all by his own at his own expense. But one day a year, on a market day, on a day when people could really have used that road, he closed the gates. 
There was no explanation. There was no guard. It was just closed. That one day a year. And the next day, the gates were open again for another year. All the, way, all the calendar all year round. And then that, again, one day a year it was closed. Now why, why did he do that? He did that to establish lordship. Sovereignty. It's my road. And that's, thank you. It's my road and don't forget it. It's mine. Um, and I'm establishing what he's saying. His actions are doing the talk in form. He's establishing that the, that, that road is his. The gates are his. The land that the road crosses is his. It's all his. He's letting the people freely use it, but it's his. And that one yearly reminder helped keep things in perspective. Now, let me ask you a question. How much of the world is the Lord's? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24. How much of your money is the Lord's? All of it. My pastor back in Indiana used to say, circle all. <laughs> all of it. I'm going to go a further question. How many have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ? How much of you belongs to the Lord? You. All. All. Now, I'm going to tell you now what the tithe is. The tithe is you recognizing God's lordship over your life, over your time, over your, over your physical being, over your, over your household, over your family, over your children. It is cheap, cheap, cheap. You're not saying, okay, God, this is, this is yours and the rest is mine. That's not at all what you're saying. If you think that, then you've misunderstood the tithe. What you're saying is, God, by this that you've determined, I'm submitting to you, and I'm telling you I belong to you. I recognize that every penny that comes into my possession is from you and belongs to you, but you've made me a steward over it. I thank you for your trust, and therefore, I am now I am now obeying. God could have said any amount at all, but this is the amount that he said. Just like that English Lord could have said, I'm going to close the gate five times a year, or I'm going to close it once a week. But then he didn't do that. He just said, it seems arbitrary to us, but there's something, there's, some, there's a certain power in the arbitrariness. We don't call the shot. God calls the shot. God makes that determination, and we submit to that determination. If we don't submit to God's determination, you know what we're saying? We're saying, I am my own source. How many want to be their own source? How many want God to be your source? Okay, so you're going to do it. You submit to God's way of doing it in order to invite the benevolence of his lordship into your life. This is... Truly the first fruits principle. The first fruits principle is giving priority to God 
and saying, God, you are Lord. You are Lord over me. I yield to you. I submit to you. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow you to have your way. This has to, this, this is worship. This is why we do, now today, I, I put off the offering. Why? Because faith, we, we should be giving by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word. I'm speaking the word to stir up our faith, and that we, we want to respond with faith. So it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a trick. It's just giving an opportunity for the faith of God to grow in us through the proclamation of the word. But there's, there's something about the power of yielding to God's purposes in our life and yielding to, I want to tell you, i got a live wire on this. The anointing of the Holy Spirit's here. There's something about coming into God's house and saying, God, I yield this to you. I yield this to you. This is a good, this is a good time to say, say this. It was a good annual business meeting. I didn't plan it this way, but it's just the way it fell. I mentioned something last week. God wants to take his people to a new place when it comes to giving. Obviously, the deeply immature, immature to the point of disobedience, sometimes, people, sometimes we can be disobedient and not even know we're being disobedient because we're just not mature. The disobedient, don't give, they don't give, right? They're not recognizing God's sovereignty through this. The next level of obedience is to, is to say, I'm loyal to this local body and therefore I'm going to give to this local body. I care about what happens in the local body. That's the next level. But God wants to give us a breakthrough into the next level where we say, I'm giving to the local body because I recognize God is Lord. I recognize God is sovereign. That's kingdom giving. That's where you're like, I'm giving to God. I'm giving to God. Now, a na the nature of recognizing God as sovereign has to do with letting go. I'm going to talk about this more in the future, but it has to do with letting go. If I give a tithe, but there's a string attached, there's a condition attached. So I'm giving a tithe, and then I pound the table and I say, hey, I, I give to this, so I have a right to say X, Y, or Z. Whoa, it just stopped being the tithe. It started being dues. You see what I'm saying? Because the whole point of the tithe is you're saying, I release this to God's sovereignty. If somebody says, well, I, I'm not, I don't like the way they do it here. Okay. You go someplace else, God's sovereignty. There's no place you can go where you're going to escape sovereign, God's sovereignty. Are you following what I'm saying? So you're going to serve somebody. You're going you're gonna to recognize God as sovereign, or you're not. But if you're going to recognize God as sovereign in one place, you're going to have to recognize he's sovereign in another place. Is already tracking with me on that? So the whole point is we give, and that you say, well, that's, a, that's like jumping off a cliff. That's freedom, friends. That's freedom. That's liberation. That's liberty. It's an exhausting thing to say, well, bless God, I've been given to this church for 50 years, and, and, uh, and I got a right to, oh, my goodness. That is so burdensome. That's, that's a shackle. That's a fetter. 
that God wants you to be free from. What's joy is to say, God, you've guided me to this place, to this local body, to this fellowship. I feel a peace in the spirit. And now that I'm here, hallelujah, I'm going to give as unto you. I'm going to give as unto you. I'm going to release it unto you. And, and I'm going to recognize your sovereign and your Lord. And, and you own it all. Oh, man. It is such a, it's such a liberty to not belong to ourselves. It is such a freedom. The enemy doesn't understand it. And so the enemy is always talking and deceiving people about that. Now you say, okay, well, this is all Old Testament stuff, Pastor Dave. What, what, how does this play out in the New Testament? This is, this is powerful. Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 says this. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now here's the thing. That's scripture. That's in scripture that somebody hung on a tree is cursed. And this was the great stumbling block for the Apostle Paul. He couldn't get his mind around when he was, when he, you know, we, we know him as Saul, the one who persecuted the early church. He couldn't get his mind around the truth that this guy is claiming to be the Messiah, but he was hung on a tree. How can we have a cursed Messiah? But when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus revealed all these powerful things uh, to, to the Apostle Paul through visions, he revealed to him it's in that paradox that the power lies. Because Jesus hung on the cross became the curse for us. He was the sponge. He was the charcoal dust that, that, that absorbed the poison out of our spirit and out of our life. He became the curse for us. So the curse doesn't have to fall on us. Is everybody following me? So it's true, cursed is the one who hung on a tree. But Jesus, by, by hanging on that tree, absorbs the curse so we have the blessing. So what does this mean? This means that the form of the curse that is mentioned in Malachi in reference to tithing is lifted. The curse is broken off of us. Can anybody say hallelujah? This isn't about performance. This is about grace. It's about the grace of God released to us. Now, God is still as sovereign as he ever was. So we still give. We still release our giving to him, but it's not under threat. There's no condemnation. There's no alienation. There's no separation. It's not, it's not about fear. It's not about, oh, i got to write the check. And your hand's trembling. i got to write the check because, because i got to avoid the curse. That's not what this is about. Read the passage. Read from the passage that I read last week. And, and I just think this is powerful, powerful. Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I just want to read a couple of passages. This is Paul. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. It was an offering that Paul was taking, but he calls it an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Another translation calls it the grace of giving. The grace of giving. And I talked about this last week, how 
different people, even different church bodies can develop different graces, can be strong in different areas. Some churches are particularly strong in love. Some churches just have a spirit of worship on them. Some churches are very, very powerful in missions. How many can say amen that we want to be strong in all those things? Glory to God. Amen? Glory to God. But Paul points out the Corinthian church, was, which was a wealthy, gifted church. They had, uh, they had civic leaders there. They had orators. They had re educated religious people there. They, it was a very powerful church in a lot of ways. But you know what they were weak on? They were weak in the grace of giving. Yet these Macedonian churches to the north at Thessalonica and at Philippi, they were poor. They were poor as you would count a bank account or a, a, a ledger. They were poor. But they were rich in the grace of giving. It says they literally begged Paul, please, 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 please help us. Please let us participate in this. Paul was trying to wave them off. He's saying, you guys don't have the wherewithal. You don't have, you know, we want to, we want, we want to, we want to. They were strong in the grace of giving. It was grace, and Paul says it, it was grace. Listen to this from the end of the passage in chapter 9. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's talking about after you've given. He's able to make all grace abound to you. How many believe the word of God is true? Amen? How many believe he's able to make grace abound to you? Yes. Glory to God. So that, ha so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Again, circle all. All sufficiency in all things at all times. That sounds pretty good. You may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's the Lord, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying when you give to God through the work of God, not only is that worship, but it engenders worship in others. Right? So you're worshiping the Lord as you give, but not only that, you're empowering the work of the ministry to go forward to where more people are brought to Christ where more people are brought in. Hallelujah. And they'll give thanks to God. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all the others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You know what it says, thanks be to God? It's, it literally says, grace be to God. In this passage, 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, this passage about giving, the word grace occurs 10 times. That's more than the entire book of 1 Corinthians combined. Paul is talking about grace, grace, grace. Forget the curse. Forget it. It's about grace. It's about the grace of God. 
It's about God pouring out his blessing. It's about God uh, uh, reaching souls. Hallelujah. God wants to do a great work. Ken, I'm going to tell on you. Ken Sullivan, can I tell your story? Tell your dream? Now you're stuck, because if you say no, then it's like, well. God's doing a work. Ken Sullivan. God gave him a dream this week. And if you say, well, that's presumptuous of you. Well, I want to tell you, he came over to, came over to the parsonage and he began to tell me this dream. The spirit of the Lord filled the room. It was very powerful. And he said he had a vivid dream. Correct me if I'm getting it wrong. He had a vivid dream. He was standing by a stream. There's another fellow off to one side. He was standing by a stream and he looked down and there was a gold nugget. It was a chunk of gold. And he reached into the water and he fished it out of the stream. And then he saw more. The mud was coming off the gold from the creek bed. and He took that gold and he stuck it in his pockets. And he looked and there was more. <laughs> and so he... He waded into the stream, and he, he got more of the gold. And as he, he was just walking along, following. Every time he took a step, there was more and more gold. Is this right? He comes out of the stream, and he, he comes up a bank. And just one foot in front of the other, he's picking up gold off the ground. And he comes up to an old shack, one of those old mining town, a sayer shack, where you turn in your gold dust for, for money. And he goes in and it was abandoned. It had been abandoned for like a hundred years. And he begins to search around in drawers. And by then there's a crowd around you, right? People. And he's looking and there's gold coins. There's gems. There's all this wealth. And he's filling his pockets and it's weighing his pants down where the weight of it is. And he's just amazed at the wealth. And he walks out and all the people are standing around he walks out and he says to himself this isn't right this isn't right that I have all this wealth and he walked back into the shack and he said I'm going to split it with you I'm going to share the wealth with you and then he woke up did I get it right I can't see it in my mind's eye like he can he had the dream and I want to tell you, I want to tell you, you take care of God's business and God will take care of your business. And I mean that in every respect. Giving is by faith. As the tide of the Holy Spirit rises in this place. I was in this place yesterday in the sanctuary praying the Spirit of God filled this place. As we obey the Lord, as we obey the Lord in everything, this isn't a trick. This isn't something where you put in money and you pull the handle. And This isn't some trick. This has to do with our whole life. This has to do with surrendering our whole self to the Lord. God, I'm going to share, G. I'm going to seek you in prayer. I'm going to meditate on your word day and night. 
I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to ask that you take a coal from the altar and purify my lips. That my words be pure. I'm going to speak well of the people of God. I'm going to proclaim the truth of God. I'm not going to curse my prayers. I'm going to speak God's word over what I'm praying. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to share Jesus. I'm going to give to the work of God. It's a comprehensive thing. And when that happens, the wealth of God begins to flow in our life. At every level. At every level. At every level. And God wants to restore. I want to tell you what I felt yesterday when I was in this house, in this, in this sanctuary. And I was prompted of the Holy Spirit, and I, I felt very strong. I feel even now very strongly it was from the Lord because I couldn't even find words to pray out what I was feeling in my spirit. But God is loosing a spirit of restoration on this church individuals and for the whole body a spirit of rejuvenation a spirit of building and repairing and restoring and growth a spirit of hope it's what God wants to do in our midst I want to I want to encourage you get in that flow get in that flow get in that flow I want to invite the musicians to come Um, brothers, can we prepare to receive an offering from God? And I want to, I want to pray as we prepare to give. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for your people. God, a people who reverence you, a people who are your very own and they hunger to do what is right to seek your face, to know you, and to walk by faith and not by sight. God, we are grateful, Lord, for faith and for the freedom of faith, for the freedom of release into you. God, we glorify you and we praise you. God, now bless us as we bring this offering to recognize you as the owner of all, as the owner of me glorify you for it. In Jesus' name, brothers, come right now.